Welcome once again to the Towards Wholeness podcast, where you will find next steps in your journey to wholeness in both spirit, soul, and body. Last time we were together, we heard from a nutrition specialist, and we're in this theme right now related to where our physical health and matters of the body intersect matters of the spirit and soul. So today we're going to be talking about the heart. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Proverbs 4.23, which is where we're told, Above all else, guard your heart, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. It's a fascinating passage. And many of you may know that this passage has been interpreted, particularly in the West, for centuries as exclusively speaking to matters of the quote-unquote, spiritual heart. In other words, the heart is taken in this text as a synonym for the spirit. But uh, over the course of my career as a pastor, I've kind of had this intersection of two things that have happened. I'd be sitting in a board meeting sometimes, and I'm not out of breath, and I feel fine, and I look at my watch, which these days is a cardiology machine, and it will tell me my pulse is 105. And then it'll tell me my stress level is elevated, which is what it's really doing is it's measuring my heart rate variability. And I'm thinking, wow, um, what's wrong with me? And then I'll realize that in that particular meeting, when my blood pressure is elevated, my heart rate variability is in an unhealthy way depressed, and my pulse is up, I'll realize I'm I'm in a stressful board meeting and I have a bad attitude. And I'm annoyed with this other board member or something like that. And it started me down this journey of thinking, maybe my physical heart is trying to tell me to pay attention to other areas of my life, my attitudes, things that are often thought of as spiritual. So it's it's an incredible privilege today to have a cardiologist specialist with us, Dr. Bob Swenson. And I just want to introduce him to you. Bob did his cardiovascular training at the University of Washington and was in clinical practice at uh, the Vancouver Clinic in Vancouver, Washington for 32 years. He and his wife, Peggy, have been married for 48 years. They have three sons, Jacob, Nick, and Luke. And Bob, like myself, is an avid hiker and outdoors person. We spent some time prior to hitting record talking about his recent trip where he just returned from the Dolomites. Uh, an area in northern Italy where my wife and I had hiked about eight years ago as well. His faith is central to his life. And in some sense, I would say his faith has informed his practice as a cardiologist as well. So, Bob, I want to welcome you and thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to engage in this conversation with us. Well, thank you. I'm uh, happy to be here and looking forward to our talk today. So yeah, probably the first thing for all of us to understand you better before we get into this nitty gritty of the subject that I've articulated is can you just tell us a little bit about uh, how you chose cardiology or maybe we could put it a different way. How did cardiology choose you? But how did you end up with that career? Because that'll inform our conversation a little bit. I, you might say I feel like I was predestined to cardiology. I am the son of a general contractor and I went off to college 
as a pre-med student, but I really didn't know anything about medicine or doctoring. And I volunteered at a local hospital and I met these two cardiologists and I began working for them in the cardiac catheterization lab and was immediately drawn to this whole issue of heart disease and not just the science and the physiology of heart disease, but the spiritual part of it. I mean, when someone has a heart attack, you know, it, it involves the patient to their very core, their family, uh, their, their life changes in that moment, you know, when, when they're diagnosed. And, and that was something that just drew me right in. So I went off to medical school after that thinking, gee, I know the world needs more general doctors. I should go into family medicine, but I kept coming back to cardiology and I never doubted that or had any trouble with it. I, I loved being a cardiologist. It was really fun for me. So in, in uh, some of our e email exchanges, you wrote this sentence and I'm going to quote it here and have you unpack it a little bit. Uh, you said the heart's identification as a person's life force and the home of one's spirit drew me into the practice of cardiology. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by uh, the heart's identification as a person's life force? I mean, I think nowadays we tend to think of uh, our spirit and our personality as residing in the brain, but, but I still think in a very visceral way, we recognize um, the central importance and, and the really vital nature of the fact that our heart is, is you know, you can't live without one. And, you know, having been in the emergency room over those 30 years and being called in for someone having a heart attack, when I looked at in the eyes of a guy who was maybe 46 or 48 and been completely healthy up until a half hour before I met them, and, you know, it was the kind of thing where, I was kind of starting to inform them and take them on a journey, but they knew they were on it. You know, they were in it a hundred percent. They didn't meet, need me to tell them that what we were dealing with, you know, it was, it was a, a vis very visceral thing. And, and again, also the family, the wife at the bedside, it was more often men than women, but you know, from that moment, we were engaged in something that was going to change the course. You know, the, their life had changed fundamentally over those few minutes before I walked in. And, um, you know, it, it's a very unique kind of thing. It's different than serious problems with your kidneys or your liver. That's or right. Other parts of us. Uh, I could always say, you know, when patients were worried, gee, I, I can't, I got to go right back to work, doc. I, you know, and I would say, listen, you just tell your doc you're in the hospital after a heart attack and they'll understand. You're going to be okay taking two weeks off work. Don't worry about it. I mean, this is so fascinating because I remember an incident uh, two summers ago, I contracted the, the flu and it was, it was serious enough with some intestinal problems that I was getting dehydrated and I needed to go to the emergency room. But as well, uh, a presenting symptom was... Uh, my pulse was elevated, like it was like 125. So when I when I showed up at the emergency room, normally in an emergency room setting, it's like a four hour wait, you know, because there's people who've come in before you with 
cuts and abrasions and sprained ankles or whatever. But because, because they took my pulse and it was that high, they went immediately, they whisked me in and they hooked me up with, to uh, an electrocardiogram. And uh, I, I thought, man, I'm at the front of the line. And they said, yeah, you are, because we're checking to see if your heart's okay. Because that, that kind of doesn't wait. And it sent me thinking while I was then waiting after they determined it wasn't a heart attack. It sent me thinking down this, this road of how, you know, I've been in, in the emergency room for a concussion. I've been in an emergency room with a groin injury from skiing, with a broken finger from playing basketball. And in all those cases, all you want to do is get back to doing what you were doing before. We get back to normal. But when, the, when something is in your heart, it creates a holistic kind of whole life evaluation. Like you're going to have to change this and this and this. So I'm wondering, um, you're essentially telling people in the wake of a heart attack that they need to care for their heart by doing certain things. What kind of things do you include in that list and why? The, the most common serious problem that we're talking about is coronary artery disease and atherosclerosis. And there are known risk factors for that. Um, genetics, so a, a person's family history um, and uh, smoking, people that are smokers. But the things that I think we're talking about today in terms of lifestyle Diet is huge, and uh, there's been tremendous advances in terms of our understanding of diet, although I think human metabolism is so complex uh, that I think we still have a lot to learn about yes. um, dietary practice. And then for me personally, and I think you share this too, I, I mean, we have seen a real fundamental change in how people live their lives over the last um, 30 years, you know, you and I grew up in a world where we spent several hours a day as children being active in play, being physically active. And, you know, those days are over. It's, uh, it's really a, a time where people have transitioned to a much more sedentary lifestyle. Now, when you're outside and you see kids, they're as likely to be on a motorized scooter as a self-propelled scooter. Um, We've really, we've really become much more sedentary. And um, so I personally believe that activity is a, is a critical component of not only cardiovascular health, but a person's general health as well. So uh, diet, exercise, uh, I mean, I feel like another, another area where there's been a change in our culture is we we've moved from in our childhood our parents having you know the same job for 30 years a 40-hour work week in the office at eight coffee break at 10 lunch you know three home at five watch lassie on television or disney or something like that on sunday nights uh and and uh you know nuclear family quite predictable it just I don't. I don't want to uh, sound like I'm romanticizing the past because I know the past carried baggage with race and oppression and women's rights and all kinds of things. On the other hand, we live in a time now when uh, often when you ask someone how they're doing, the first answer I hear as a pastor is, "I'm way too busy." 
I'm way too busy. And in fact, uh, my wife was trying to recruit people for something in church. And almost everyone she asked said, I would love to, but I have four other prior commitments that preclude me from doing this thing. And uh, it, you just get this feeling like we're running on adrenaline more than we ought to be or something like that. Does that enter into your conversations with patients? Absolutely. And uh, I can think of one patient in particular who came to see me because of concerns about um, chest discomfort, shortness of breath. And as we went together through her story, after listening to her and examining her, I looked at her and I said, you know, I really think um, your heart issue um, is your boss. <laughs> because you're you're in an extremely stressful situation at work, and I think this is having a major import on your situation. I offered to write her a letter to her employer, and she said, "Yeah, we probably shouldn't do that. I really need this job." But but I don't think we can underestimate the role of stress. And again, not to sound like a someone uh, who's tied to the past. But I think the degree of immersion in, you know, this whole social media thing, for me, part of the health benefit and the enjoyment and the pleasure of walking through the woods is connecting in a real, in a, like in a, it's a totality to the na natural world. I mean, I'm when I'm walking in the woods, I can hear my foot you know, my feet strike the soil. I can hear the wind in the trees. I can hear the birds. I can hear the stream. And I, I actually often when I see other hikers and they have their earbuds in and they're listening to music, I mean, I think that's fine, but I honestly think they're missing part of the experience. And I, and I think that um, the, this world that, you know, uh, that we inhabit in 2022 it's really a different world than the one that we grew up in. And I, and I'm not sure, I, I think there's major health implications that are coming to light. The degree of the pervasiveness of anxiety. I don't know anybody under the age of 40 who hasn't had a, I mean, it just seems like anxiety is so prevalent among individuals and, you know, concerns about employment, education, you know, Location, I mean, and and the fact that they're all worried about what's happening in Ukraine and, you know, concerns about inflation in Europe. I mean, it's fine. Those are all big issues, but those can really, you know, have a big impact on a person's sense of well-being and confidence and comfort. Yeah. And so a couple, a couple of things that I want to ask you about as follow-up. First of all, related to anxiety. Uh, anxiety sounds like a, a phrase with psychological implications, maybe spiritual implications. What are the symptoms of anxiety that present physiologically? I think um, tachycardia people um, have increased circulating catecholamines, the sympathetic nervous system gets turned on because these, you know, in their most basic uh, sense, this is uh, a stress response. So it's, it's not a stress response to a physical threat, but that emotional and psychological dynamic that, that 
our bodies respond to. And um, that takes a toll that can cause fatigue. It can, you know, um, I, I think I think it has a major health import for people. So it feels like uh, if I put that into my own words, uh, if I go back in evolutionary time, I would have these acute moments when my sympathetic nervous system would kick in, right? Like you encounter the famous saber-toothed tiger or the warring tribe or whatever, and then you rise up to the occasion, you either fight back, and if you fight back, you either win or lose. If you lose, you lose. If you win, you win, but it's over, or you run away and it's over. Uh, the phrase that I sometimes use in my own life when I feel like I'm living in a video game and I just am reacting this crisis, this crisis, you know, one after another coming at me, I, I will, I'd come home sometimes and say to my wife, I just feel like my off switch is broken. Like I can't like, like, okay, the storm's over. Uh, and now I'm sitting at home, but my, I haven't yet recovered. My pulse isn't like, is there a delayed effect of recovery when our stress becomes chronic? I think there is. I think I think these homeostatic systems get reset, and we often see that. Uh, one of the things that I found interesting caring for people after open heart surgery, I would see people often three to four months after their surgery. They they had seemed to be really healed for several weeks, and yet I'd noticed the resting pulse might be 110, 160. Really. And, and, and I found that even as a cardio, you know, cardiovascular specialist, wow, this, this person looks so good. He's doing so well, but, um, his, his physical recovery is not nearly complete. He's still, he's still got a lot of healing. And, And I think that, I think that, um, you know, when people enter into, um, situational stressors like at work or in in their environment in their family in their personal life when that when that is a persistent uh, issue you know i i think that really takes a toll on a person's body i think there's vascular effects that occur uh and cardiovascular effects one of the things about this you know talking about the heart is the other aspect of things is the heart is part of the circulatory system. So a lot of times when cardiologists are asked to see individuals who feel like they're not doing well and they're worried about their heart because they fatigue easily, they can't go out and be physically active, they can't do the things they used to do, more often than not, those people's heart, the heart itself, the pump is fine. But the cardiovascular system has become deconditioned, you know, because they haven't taken care of themselves with regular activity and, you know, normal activities. The pump is fine, but the cardiovascular system has lost its efficiency. You know, that's part of this, um, this whole issue of stress response and parasympathetic versus sympathetic activity. The, the difference between trained athletes and, and more sedentary individuals is, is that training effect that, that an athlete, if you put them on the treadmill, their, their heart rate will increase very gradually because they're very efficient. 
Um, whereas a person who has not been engaged in regular activity, the minute they hit the treadmill, their heart rate goes from 80 or 90 to 140, 150. And after four minutes, they're exhausted because they've been running at a heart rate of 150 right off the get-go, whereas an athlete is three minutes in and their heart rate's gone from, from 60 to 75. <laughs> so they have a much more efficient, finely tuned system that they've, you know, every day they go out and jog, they're developing this, you know, training effect that um, makes for a much more efficient system. The Japanese prescribe something that you alluded to, it, and they call it forest bathing, right? So they'll actually say to people, uh, like a doctor will write a prescription and say, now you go to this particular park, which is like in Japan, a certified forest bathing park, and then we want you to go walk slowly through this park, no music, smell the air. Um, that seems related to what you said about uh, – like there's a physiological benefit to paying attention and encountering creation. Yeah. And I, and I think, I do think it's a fundamental need. And um, I, I honestly, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to live in a urban environment without the opportunity to, you know, even in urban environments, people have created parks, they've created yeah. little pieces of nature. And I, and I think that's absolutely essential for people's health to have those opportunities and those places where people can make that connection. I think it's a vital part of who we are. What have you uh, engaged with, Bob, around the theme of uh, meditation and heart health? I know there have been studies done uh, on mindfulness meditation, and some of those uh, have included uh, 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 a, a more or less Christian slant as well, where mindfulness meditation is is rooted in prayer. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the relationship of meditation and kind of cleaning our mind of clutter and heart health? Yeah, I, I have to admit that as a cardiologist, I haven't uh, had the discipline and taken the time. I have, I'm an action-oriented person, and I have enjoyed, over the last several years, I've spent more time. I try every day to do about 20 minutes of kind of stretching and yoga, and um, I do believe that having a quiet time and spending time in scripture and prayer is essential. I think that no end to the data about the, the powerful benefits of quiet and introspection. Uh, I think it can be seen, just as we talked about a training effect for activity, I think there's a training effect for periods of stillness and quiet and discipline. I, I took a trip to Tibet several years ago and I was, I was talking to a, my guide about meditation and, and I told him that it was very difficult for me to quiet myself. And he said, well, in, our, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, we don't start meditating until we've done a thousand prostrations. 
And right. I thought that was pretty interesting. I said, oh, well, maybe that's what would help me better <laughs> is, you know, make that there is, there has to be this intention. You know, there has yes. to be a yes. sense of intention and discipline linked to that. That's funny. I, you know, I have a morning routine and it's related to some breathing exercises which address heart rate variability. My next question to you. But at the end of it, uh, while holding my breath, I, I do push-ups and I end up doing somewhere between 40 and 50 push-ups while I'm holding my breath. And then I go into a time of meditation where I pray on my, I kind of meditate and prayerfully articulate my identity in Christ. You know, I'm completing Christ. Thank you. I am loved. Thank you. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Thank you. And by the end of that, my pulse is lower. My heart rate variability has elevated, which is a good thing. It's kind of shot through the roof. And, uh, and yet I don't know that it would work as well if the push-ups weren't in there. So there's, it's kind of like those prostrations. There's, a, there's an element, uh, if meditation is a, is a, like in the Psalms, there's that word selah, which is essentially a Hebrew word that means, okay, stop. If I'm already not really active, it's going to be hard to understand that stop. But if I've done 40 push-ups or a thousand prostrations, maybe then the stop becomes, you know, more meaningful in some sense. I don't know. That makes sense. I mean, I, I do think there are some of us that, and I think there's probably a gender effect. I mean, I, I you got to be a little careful with all this, but I do think that, I do think that it helps trying to, trying to just enter that directly sometimes is more difficult than having a kind of a, a, a set to help you get to that place. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. Yes. Uh, so can we talk a little bit about heart rate variability? Because I know at least in the athletic world, this is, this is the new fad, right? Like we're all paying attention to heart rate variability, but I think there are many people who might be listening to this who have no idea what we're talking about. They may know their blood pressure number maybe, and they might have a clue of their resting pulse, but wouldn't understand heart rate variability or even why they should care. Uh, so can you give us a little primer? And then I have a couple follow-up questions around this theme. Yeah. So heart rate variability is uh, something that's been around for probably 20 or 30 years for, in the cardiovascular community. Uh, and it's a complicated thing. When we talk about heart rate variability, we're just talking about how the interval between your, your heart contractions varies over time. And the interesting thing about that is that when there's dysfunction of the heart, for example, people that have uh, weakness of the heart, heart failure, it ends up that the heart rate variability dramatically decreases. If you look at a person like that and look at their pulse over, for example, a 24-hour recording, their heart rate is always in the 80s to 90s. It, it never varies between uh, it never drops below 80. It maybe gets up to 100, 110. And, and it's, it's a very steady kind of a deal. If, if you think about a healthy heart and a healthy cardiovascular system, I think that it's surprising even to many physicians. Physicians aren't aware of how, how much 
how dynamic your cardiovascular system is and the fact that your heart rate varies not just over the course of a 24-hour period, but really minute to minute. And um, the interesting thing about that is it's not an intrinsic, in general, the heart rate is not necessarily an intrinsic indicator of the heart, but it's a response of the interaction between the heart and the autonomic nervous system, that part of the nervous system that's not, it's an unconscious it's, it's the thing that's helping you breathe and maintain your blood pressure. And um, it's been found that when a person has diminished heart rate variability, this is often a reflection of high sympathetic tone. So what we talked about a bit ago with this stress situation, whereas in a, in a healthy individual who has much more parasympathetic or more of a vagal influence, and also, this is something, again, part of the training effect is to, to really augment that, heighten that, make that much more um, sensitive and functioning at a, at a much better level. That all gets related in a person's heart rate variability. So and, and these, what, I, what I love about what you're saying is, uh, you know, I read a, an, art, an article recently, and I'll post a link for our listeners in the in the notes uh, when when we publish here, but it was an article in Psychology Today about heart rate variability and the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is is the nerve that stimulates the parasympathetic, like rest and digest piece of our of our mm -hmm. bodies. And so the the question on the table in this article was, what kind of things can I do? to move me into this parasympathetic space. And he lists all these things. And the, here's the funny thing. The things that he lists, I could tie almost every one of them to a spiritual discipline. So for example, uh, he goes, get outside and experience majesty and transcendence, you know? And I, and I go, okay, that's read the first book of creation, Psalm 19, you know, Romans, Romans 1, Romans 10. Psalm 104. And then uh, he says, pray. And I go, okay, that's in the scriptures as well. Praying actually stimulates my vagal tone, right? And then he talks about silence and solitude. Well, that's meditation and a, and a, and a morning routine. And then he talks about uh, uh, letting go of your anger. And he, in his uh, phraseology, he encourages people to journal but I think about, um, you know, Apostle Paul in Philippians 4 says, hey, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. And so that's, it's the equivalent of journaling where I'm bringing my concerns before my creator. And then the promise of the scripture is the peace of God will guard. Isn't this awesome? Will guard your heart. The peace of God will guard your heart. And I used to think, oh, yeah, whatever. That, that doesn't mean my cardiological being. Increasingly, I'm beginning to suspect that these spiritual disciplines are actually affecting my cardiological health. And so that, that article really blew my mind because this guy was articulating things that I articulate in, in classes when I teach students how to, how to prepare uh, what I call habits for wholeness, basically a rule of life, spiritual disciplines. And the effect is not only good for our spirit, but good for our, good for our heart. Yeah. And I, I think it's, um, 
it shouldn't surprise us, you know, that for those of us who are spiritually minded, that these things, there's, you know, they, they fit together. And, you know, that, that part, you know, the idea that you could be spiritually healthy without having this awareness of the, you know, it's, it's a very mysterious thing, the interaction of the soul and the spirit and the body and how it all ties together. Um, you know, I, I, it's, 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 it's very fascinating from a, for me as a physician, from a physiologic standpoint, trying to put together, but I think it's, um, I think any physician has to acknowledge these things. And, and it's interesting, you know, going back to the stress thing, it was only in the last 10 years, there's actually a condition called the stress cardiomyopathy now where people who have a sudden emotional stress, they can present with congestive heart failure where you can really? see that there's actually the, in a, in a way that their, their heart can look like they've suffered a heart attack and yet they're, all the arteries are open, there's perfectly normal blood flow. And, and the thing is, is that's almost always reversible. So you'll see these people, they present and they'll, they'll often say, uh, I had some extremely, you know, shocking event. My, I, my brother passed away suddenly, or I was in a car accident and, uh, they present with congestive heart failure and six weeks later, their heart has recovered. Wow. So, but, but the fact that it was a measurable physiologic response to an emotional and a stressful event um that was new people had never described that before and uh and and it it just you know gives more evidence to this sense that we have that these things are deeply interconnected and very 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 important you know how they interact with each other and it and it sounds as if uh, there's still a great deal to learn about where your discipline as a cardiologist and my discipline as a as a, a, a spiritual uh, director and pastor intersect. But but I think what we do know from our short conversation is that they do intersect. The last question I have is uh, I always like to try and leave people with one next step that they could take. And so if you're speaking to a generic population here, which I realize is supremely challenging for a doctor, and you want to give encourage one step to strengthen the heart slash spirit in their lives, what, what would that be? I think that it's hard for me to narrow it down to one. I would say two things. I would say set aside time to be out and take a walk and, and include in that disconnecting from you know, social media, take off the headphones, take out your earbuds, turn off your phone. You, you won't, you know, the likelihood of you missing a life-changing event during that 45 minutes, um, you owe it to yourself. When my, when my sons were in college, I would constantly tell them, you got to get out and you got to jog for an hour a day. You got to play racquetball. You got to go shoot some hoops. You got to, do some physical activity, your time of study will be so much more efficient. If you spend all, you know, four hours a day in the library, 
I, I can tell you that if you go spend 45 minutes or an hour and exercise, the three hours or the two hours you spend in the library, you're going to get twice as much done as if you never take that time to exercise and, and quiet your body so that your body can operate more efficiently. That's wise. Yeah. Well, Bob, I want to thank you for taking the time for this conversation. I think many people are going to benefit from it. I feel like I have six more questions to ask you. So it could be that we'll, we'll reconnect again in the future. Uh, but for now, uh, thank you so much for your investment in uh, other people's lives via this podcast. And our hope is that as people listen, they'll be encouraged to see this relationship between the spiritual heart and the physical heart and how feeding one will necessarily in a good way feed the other. So may that be our, our story as we close out together. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, everyone. And I look forward to our next time together. We have a couple more people planned uh, as guests for our uh, series here on the body, uh, a movement specialist and someone who's going to introduce us to the beauties of cold showers. So I look forward to both of those conversations. Until next time, this is Richard Dahlstrom. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.